Genesis thirty-two twenty-eight, And he said, Your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have struggled with God and with men and have prevailed. Welcome to Walking Through the Book. I'm Stephen McCrary. And I'm Brian Bales. And today we'd like to talk with you about the Bible. Specifically, we want to discuss Genesis 32 and 33 today. Walking Through the Book is all about these three things. We want to encourage Bible reading, to read our Bibles, to demonstrate proper and responsible study of the Bible. And we certainly hope that's what we're doing. And emphasize, thirdly, what the text says, no more and no less. We don't want to bring any kind of outside agenda to the text. And we want to make sure that we're seeing the pure word as it is, not as what we would like it to be. And, you know, one thing when we think about this, and we're so grateful for you taking the time to listen to the podcast today, but, you know, we may get something wrong and uh, already in the course of having this show, we've had uh, one listener uh, email us about a particular subject, and we certainly uh, welcome those uh, emails or any kind of contact. We're on Facebook. You can find us uh, on at Walking Through the Book um, and can easily find us that way. You can also email us at walkingthroughthebook at protonmail.com. And also you can find some more contact info on NorthColumbusChristians.com. That's the website of the congregation that I work, worship with and work with in Columbus, Mississippi. And uh, if you're ever heading through Columbus, Mississippi, for whatever reason, we invite you to uh, be with us. Uh, we have regular service times uh, as stated on our website. We actually are in the middle of a gospel meeting this week. And uh, I think by the time this is out on the Internet that that meeting will probably be over. But uh, we're certainly thankful to have Jonathan Brown with us this week. And uh, if you want to check out the recorded lessons from that uh, week, from that gospel meeting, you can check on our website under Sermons and Studies, and you'll be able to find the audio for that on there. And so we're, we're certainly grateful to be here. Uh, Bryant, thank you for taking the time with us today. You want to go over the flow of the program and let everybody know how to get in touch with you? Yeah, so... Uh... I work with the church in uh, Savannah, Georgia, just west of downtown in Garden City. Uh, we have a website, gardencitycoc.org, if you'd like to visit that. We're um, working on updating our website, so if you if you go to that website, uh, you won't find any recent sermons, unfortunately. That part of our website seems to be broken, but we're working on that. And we do have a Facebook page. Um, we'd love to hear from you if you're ever going to be in the area. If you have any questions about how to find the, the building where the congregation assembles, we'd be happy to hear from you and help you with that. Uh, it's very easy to find when you know where it is. Um, and Savannah is just such a beautiful area. I'm sure uh, if you're listening, you've maybe heard some things about Savannah or know people who have visited. And uh, it's just a beautiful place to spend time with a lot to do and a lot of history. Um, but anyway, so uh, the podcast itself, uh, what we're trying to do, like Stephen already said, is just um, purely 
just read and digest and learn from God's word without any additions put on top of that or um, any any kind of silliness or, or, or mistreatment of the word. We, we really wanted to be just carefully reverent and humble in approaching it and try to keep the big picture in mind. So we're kind of following a consistent flow um, of reading the text and then just making some initial observations um, and kind of pointing out things that maybe just stuck out to us from the reading or just some unusual things that we want to talk about or some striking points initially. Uh, then we go through themes that might relate to the the greater story and the flow of Genesis itself and uh, the greater picture of maybe even the the story of scripture in, in, in general. Um, connections related to Jesus, his work, his nature, uh, the church and, and our identity in the church. Um, and then we try to always conclude with making applications from the text as well. So we'll be just following a very simple outline today, as we always do, and we hope that you find that to be just simply edifying. Well, as we said earlier, we are going to be reading chapter 32 and chapter 33 of Genesis. Bryant, Lord willing, will be reading chapter 32, and I will read chapter 33. And uh, Bryant, I'll be reading from the New King James Version. What translation will you be reading from? I've got the New American Standard. I just uh, so my my last Bible that I started this podcast with was a New King James, but it it got a little crowded um, with personal notes, so I'm using a New American Standard and kind of starting over here. So it'll be an NASB today. It's always good to get a fresh Bible and almost get fresh eyes in your reading with it too. So. Yes, it is. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Now as Jacob went on his way, the angels of God met him. Jacob said when he saw them, this is God's camp. So he named that place Mahanaim. Then Jacob sent messengers before him to his brother Esau in the land of Seir, the country of Edom. He also commanded them saying, thus you shall say to my Lord Esau, thus says your servant Jacob, I have sojourned with Laban and stayed until now. I have oxen and donkeys and flocks and male and female servants, and I have sent to tell my Lord that I may find favor in your sight. The messengers returned to Jacob, saying, We came to your brother Esau, and furthermore he is coming to meet you, and four hundred men are with him. Then Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed, and he divided the people who were with him, and the flocks and the herds and the camels, into two companies. For he said, If Esau comes to the one company and attacks it, then the company which is left will escape. Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, O Lord, who said to me, return to your country and to your relatives, and I will prosper you. I am unworthy of all the loving kindness and of all the faithfulness which you have shown to your servant. For with my staff only I crossed this Jordan, and now I have become two companies. Deliver me, I pray, from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, 
For I fear him, that he will come and attack me and the mothers with the children. For you said, I will surely prosper you and make your descendants as the sand of the sea, which is too great to be numbered. So he spent the night there. Then he selected from what he had with him a present for his brother Esau, 200 female goats and 20 male goats and 200 ewes and 20 rams, 30 milking camels and their colts, 40 cows and 10 bulls, 20 female donkeys and 10 male donkeys. He delivered them into the hand of his servants, every drove by itself, and said to his servants, Pass on before me and put a space between droves. He commanded the one in front, saying, When my brother Esau meets you and asks you, saying, To whom do you belong, and where are you going, and to whom do these animals in front of you belong? Then you shall say, These belong to your servant, Jacob. It is a present sent to my lord Esau, and behold, he also is behind us. Then he commanded also the second and the third, and all those who followed the drove, saying, After this manner you shall speak to Esau when you find him, and you shall say, Behold, your servant Jacob also is behind us. For he said, I will appease him with the present that goes before me. Then afterward I will see his face. Perhaps he will accept me. So the present passed on before him while he himself spent that night in the camp. Now he arose that same night and took his two wives and his two maids and his eleven children and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream, and he sent across whatever he had. Then Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until daybreak. When he saw that he had not prevailed against him, he touched the socket of his thigh. So the socket of Jacob's thigh was dislocated while he wrestled with him. Then he said, Let me go, for the dawn is breaking. But he said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. So he said to him, What is your name? And he said, Jacob. He said, Your name shall no longer be Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him and said, Please tell me your name. But he said, Why is it you ask my name? And he blessed him there. So Jacob named the place Peniel. For he said, I have seen God face to face, yet my life has been preserved. Now the sun rose upon him just as he crossed over Penuel, and he was limping on his thigh. Therefore, to this day, the sons of Israel do not eat the sinew of the hip, which is on the socket of the thigh, because he touched the socket of Jacob's thigh and the sinew of the hip. Now Jacob lifted his eyes and looked, and there Esau was coming, and with him were four hundred men. So he divided the children among Leah, Rachel, and the two maidservants. And he put the maidservants and their children in front, Leah and her children behind, and Rachel and Joseph last. Then he crossed over before them and bowed himself to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. But Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him, and they wept. And he lifted his eyes and saw the women and children and said, Who are these with you? So he said, The children whom God has graciously given your servant. Then the maidservants came near, they and their children, and bowed down. And Leah also came near with her children, and they bowed down. Afterward, Joseph and Rachel came near, and they bowed down. Then Esau said, What do you mean by all this company which I met? And he said, These are to find favor in the sight of my Lord. But Esau said, I have enough, my brother. 
Keep what you have for yourself. And Jacob said, No, please, if I have now found favor in your sight, then receive my present from my hand, inasmuch as I have seen your face as though I had seen the face of God, and you were pleased with me. Please take my blessing that is brought to you, because God has dealt graciously with me, and because I have enough. So he urged him, and he took it. Then Esau said, Let us take our journey. Let us go, and I will go before you. But Jacob said to him, My Lord knows that the children are weak, and the flocks and the herds which are nursing are with me. And if the men should drive them hard one day, all the flock will die. Please let my Lord go on ahead before his servant. I will lead on slowly at a pace which the livestock that go before me and the children are able to endure, until I come to my Lord and say, Here. And Esau said, Now let me leave with you some of the people who are with me. But he said, What need is there? Let me find favor in the sight of my Lord. So Esau returned that day on his way to Seir. And Jacob journeyed to Succoth, built himself a house, and made booths for his livestock. Therefore the name of the place is called Succoth. Then Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan, when he came from Padan Aram. And he pitched his tent before the city. And he bought the parcel of land where he had pitched his tent from the children of Hamor, Shechem's father, for one hundred pieces of money. Then he erected an altar there and called it El Elohe Israel. So if you recall, in this section, we want to talk about some initial observations, some things that just stand out in front of us uh, in the reading, uh, in our time together with the text so far. And uh, Bryant, what are some things that really uh, jumped out at you with these two chapters? Just a lot of surprising interactions. Um, verse 1 and 2 is extremely strange, like defies all explanation. I think that's just couple of the most interesting verses in Genesis. It's so interesting how that like just is, is there, but it's not, there is no explanation and there's just nothing else like that in the whole Bible. It's so interesting. And then Jacob wrestling with the angel. That's very, very interesting. You know, nobody, I don't believe anybody else wrestled with an angel in the entire Bible either. And then, you know, definitely wouldn't see it coming how, Esau met Jacob and how they interacted, you know, it's just everything, everything in terms of interaction is just very shocking here. And I just think that's very interesting. It's very like nothing, nothing. If, if I was reading this for the first time, all of this would like really shock me and like pull me into the story even more. Cause I'd just be so amazed that it's happening this way. The meaning of that term Maha name is just double camp or two camps. And I'm not quite sure why it would be called two camps. Um, maybe someone who's listening can uh, email us or, or contact us and let us know a little bit more about that. Maybe we can um, follow up on that in the next episode. But yeah, that is kind of interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, what what if if this is uh, 
if these are angels of God that are sent, I mean, what did they look like? What did this, what did this person he wrestled with look like? Um, and the imagination can certainly uh, go wild with that. And certainly people have tried to um, claim that they know exactly how angels look and things such as that. Um, I just, I don't, I don't have that level of confidence <laughs> when I talk about that. The only thing I know generally in terms of angels in the Bible, one of the first things I think of is the fact that there must be something about their appearance that is at ve- at the very least intimidating. Um, because there are many, many places where someone sees an angel, they're not necessarily glad they're, they're more terrified. Um, like, uh, for example, in Luke chapter one, um, you know, John the Baptist's father, uh, Zechariah, uh, seeing an angel in the temple, well, he's, he's terrified when he sees that angel. You know, one thing that really is very clear to me is that, you know, Jacob is very, um, I really would say anxious about his meeting with Esau. Um, I don't think he's looking forward to it per se. Um, and, and we have to be realistic and recognize that there's, there's a reason why he would feel that way. Um, the last time he saw his brother, it wasn't necessarily on great terms. And uh, in fact, he was fleeing from that. And, you know, it's certainly something to think of there. And we'll have more to say in the application part about that. But, you know, he's, he's getting this offering ready for Esau. And uh, I find it very interesting, especially what he says in uh, verse 20, as well as in chapter 33, when he's talking about pleasing his Lord and pleasing Esau. Again, we'll, we'll revisit that in the next, uh, next passage. But just locally, I mean, there's a lot of interesting things going on uh, to begin with. Yeah, it is interesting, the, the whole detail with the companies it's it's also interesting uh in chapter 33 uh rachel was in a safer position than leah mm-hmm. and i wonder if in chapter 33 verse 1 if leah may have felt you know if that if that could have possibly impacted her you know that because to be where she was meant if the companies were attacked by esau that rachel could very well survive while Leah dies so that Rachel can live. Mm. So it may be an evidence of, again, that, that idea of uh, Jacob favoring uh, Rachel much more than, than Leah. Well, it links back to what you said. I, I believe in the previous episode that it certainly seems like Leah just never receives the same level of love from Jacob that she seems to have for right. him. And, uh, and as you said in the last episode, it's, it's rather sad to see that wrestling with God. You know, the interesting thing is, I, 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 you know, you mentioned earlier that this this is probably an angel, um, and and it says a man wrestled with him until the breaking of day. So I'm not I'm not sure exactly uh, what this is. I do think the most likely thing is that it is an angel. Some would say he's wrestling directly with God. Some people might say it's a um, pre-messianic uh, appearance of Jesus. Um, I, I wouldn't read that far into it, but just what he's bringing him down to, it's a question of like names. And, and there's a lot, even in just reading it locally 
it's one of these passages in Genesis that, you know, looking at it, it's like there, there's more to this than what is immediately here. And, uh, and I think that that's, that's the case. Um, and again, we'll, we'll look more at that in the next section, but do you have anything on that, Bryant? Yeah. Hosea 12, three and four, I've got a notation that points in that direction where it mentions that in the context of, uh, what the prophet is saying, he mentions that, uh, Jacob wrestled with the angel, which is, which is interesting. Maybe that's just a new American standard uh, thing um, in verse Hosea 12 verse four. Yes. He wrestled with the angel and prevailed. He wept oh. and sought his favor. That's, that's kind of interesting that it says the angel. Mm-hmm. And I wonder if, if it's the idea of the angel of the Lord, you know, God's personal messenger that we see turn, turn up in, in the old Testament from time to time. Well, thank you for that. Uh, <laughs> that uh, I don't know why I didn't consider that. Um, that reference. Yeah. I, I think that makes it very clear. I think it's great that Esau meets him in this way that Esau in his, uh, approach to him, there doesn't seem to be, uh, an immediate bitterness, which again, in our conversation about Esau beforehand, I think we did lean on that a lot, especially because, uh, the later, you know, the New Testament really uh, tells us that's the main thing about Esau was that he was wrapped up in bitterness um, about this. Right. Uh, so, but he doesn't seem to be bitter against Jacob right now. Um, so I'm not quite sure how do we reconcile that? I would suggest that the passages that talk about Esau in the New Testament really have to do with looking at Esau from that immediate moment where he gave up his birthright. He uh, forewent the promise of being in the line of the Messiah. And uh, I know I'm, I'm kind of breaking the rules here talking about this too, but um, just the fact that he rejected that at that time and he had bitterness afterward, uh, you know, uh, maybe that just helps us understand at this point that it doesn't seem like he has any outward focus or outward bitterness against Jacob. Um, mm. And again, that, that helps us with some, some far reaching implications of this relationship as well. Yeah. I'll probably want to return to that in the, in the theme section. I do think it is interesting, Jacob in relation to Esau. I mean, how many times does he call himself Esau's servant and call Esau his Lord. Mm-hmm. I think that's just really astonishing, you know, because it's like, you know, I, I think about how like calling someone Lord is to me just almost an unthinkable thing, you know, and, and I wonder if, I wonder if for Jacob, he's not that different than we are, you know, and it, I, I don't know if it would be doing it justice to say, well, you know, he lived in a different culture, a different time, you know, saying, calling someone Lord was, you know, a little bit more of a, you know, maybe a relatable and uh, normal thing. But, but I don't know. I don't know. Like, the, the, it's just amazing the the degree of the attitude you get. And I, I, I think this fits in initial observations, but just the other day I was talking to a brother here about how, because Abraham 
Isaac and Jacob had no written law. They had no option except to see their devotion to God as being devoted to a living person. There was no like ability to misunderstand it as just keeping a system of rules and regulations like that. That wasn't even an option. And so I think it's hard. It's hard to fathom the effect of truly purely seeing God as a person, a personal God. Um, and I wonder if so much of what Jesus has done is to more perfectly bring us back to this condition where, yes, we have uh, the written the written word and we have written instructions and commands, but not at the expense of seeing God as a living person, which is the problem the Pharisees got into is they they hadn't they weren't looking at God as God really, you know. Um, and again, I don't know if that, I don't know if that fits in initial observations, but that, that just comes to mind with how deeply Jacob had been impacted by everything to this point to say things like this. And I think there's just no other way except his view of God. Uh, his view of God had just dramatically changed his viewpoint on everything else at this point. I just think that's, that's just amazing. I would say that one of the things is that both Jacob and Esau are likely different people by the time of, you know, that they come back together. Mm-hmm. And that's right. just a natural thing that we find yeah. in life. Um, you know, you have a falling out with someone and time passes, um, you know, in some cases, maybe that bitterness is held on to very strongly. Uh, in other cases, maybe not so. Uh, but, you know, Jacob in the meantime, it seems has been getting closer to God and you know, I'm I'd venture to say that there's really nothing in these chapters to suggest that Esau has been getting closer to God. Um, you know, I don't have anything to say that he's been getting farther away from God, but that's just something to consider. And it may be something we want to deal with later on in the, in the program. Yeah, I think one more thing is that prayer in 9 through 12 is, to me, one of the most incredible things in Genesis. Mm-hmm. You know, um, I think the New King James in verse 10 says, I am not worthy of the least of these mercies. Is is that right? It says something like that, verse 10? Mm-hmm. Yes, yes, yes. I, I prefer that translation because the New American Standard says, I am unworthy of all the loving kindnesses and of all the faithfulness we have shown to your servant. But I, I like where he says... In the New King James, you know, I am not worthy of the least of your mercies. And I just think that's very profound. You know, because I'm, I am not worthy of the least of all the mercies and of all the truth which you have shown your servant. Yeah, I love that. I just think that's that's just incredible. You know, it's it's like, why can't I view God like that? Like, why don't I view God like that? And why don't I why don't I talk to God like that? You know, it just wow. You know, just again, like it's, that idea of, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, it's the, I was just going to say, it's the same attitude that John the Baptist had. I'm not oh, even man, worthy yeah. to use a sandal strap. I'm not right. worthy to be his slave. Right. Yeah, it's amazing. And, and again, I, I think we're going to see more development of Jacob as time goes on. Even again, I, I you know, I bring up, some of his last words that we see in Genesis to Pharaoh, I think is just amazing. Uh, you know, all, and he, he really sums up his life so well 
in that short statement that he says to Pharaoh later on in the book, but um, you can go read it yourself. (laughs) I won't, I won't spoil it right now. One more interesting thing is just how the name of Israel came to be, you know, it's like, that's such a significant name. I mean, everything in the Bible afterwards is affected by that name, you know, and, this event is so important, but it's so strange and so intimate, you know, like it's just mm-hmm. Jacob and this quote unquote man wrestling for some reason. And it doesn't even make sense, you know, because like when we know the bigger picture, like things make sense. But I mean, if you're just reading this on its own, it's like, you know, why? I mean, what what is going on? You know, and it's just, it definitely (laughs) engages your mind. You know, it it certainly makes you think. And I just think that's, it's so interesting that something so important was done. God chose to do it in such a strange way. You know, it's just really interesting. Mm -hmm. Unexpected, you might say, you know, because what is, again, that this is something that speaks so well to the authenticity of the Bible is that you have moments like this. Jacob does not go up, to a mountain and find some special place and find a sword or, or something, you know, some artifact and, you know, gain his new name in some amazing thing. Right. It, it's, it's a, it's a very, as you say, a very intimate, very personal struggle that's going on. Uh, and, and the interesting thing too, is that he prevails, over this man in some ways, right? I'm not going to let you go until you, you know, until you bless me. And that's the point where he says, I'm going to call you Israel. The name Israel means God prevails. So in getting, well, uh, I'm going to take a step back there because there's some, there's some threads that we really want to tie to that to really, pull that moment out because uh, it, you're, you're right. This is a massive moment. Yeah, um, but, but the establishment of that name of course is, is a, is very, very interesting. Yeah. And I guess I'll, I'll plant a seed for our theme section, you know, that God, he does things that in the moment it happens may look strange and um may not even really make sense in the moment, but he does it knowing what's going to come all time afterward to qualify it and give light to it. And I think this whole, this whole interaction is like that. And the whole book of Genesis is like that really, where because God knows what he's going to do in the future and how he will fulfill all of these things, he can do things and write them down in a way that just, you know, it, I heard Larry Rouse say recently, you know, that nothing, nothing engages the mind more and makes someone think more than having an unsolved problem. And I think that's like Genesis. It's a bunch of unsolved problems. It's like, what is going on? You know, but it, it engages the mind and it just makes it all the more amazing when you continue to read and you get the, you kind of get the principles and the nature of the, the work of the cross and the resurrection and you come back And it's just, wow. You know, you see events like this and you're like, wait a minute, wait a minute. I see how, I see how this means something because of the history later, you know, and again, just planting a seed for our theme section, but it's just amazing the confidence God has 
in writing this this way, knowing it just shows clear hindsight or foresight, maybe both. I don't know. So one of the most important things that we want to establish when we're studying the Bible is uh, not just the local text and you know who wrote it, wh- who, who's it written to, what is it saying, uh, but we also want to ask, how does this fit in the overall picture of the Bible? And there is indeed a, a context to the whole Bible, and uh, we have to make sure that everything that we're understanding is harmonious because, uh, of course, we're not making sure of that because I believe that that's in the text to begin with. But uh, but we do want to kind of take our gaze a little farther up in this section and ask, you know, what's what's going on with this? Does it tie in with things that happen later on in the Bible? So one of the one of the interesting things I think that you see here is, of course, you have this. Jacob, Jacob and Esau relationship talked about here. And, uh, of course, later on, that uh, relationship is further spoken of in the New Testament. And in the book of, of Romans, I think we see that very plainly as well. Um, you know, in Romans 9, uh, as, as is written, Jacob have I loved, but Esau I have hated um, and he's using that in the context of of showing ultimately that God is merciful, that that God uh, uses this relationship to show us uh, not just on an individual level, but on a national level, what's going on here. Um, the Calvinists try to take those verses in Romans nine and try to say that, well, you know, as individuals, he just chooses and picks who he wants and who he doesn't want. But again, one of the things that really sort of blows that out of the water is the sense here that in this meeting in chapter 33, that uh, Esau is not hated. And in fact, Jacob is doing everything he can to be good to him and to help him out. Um, you know, God did not utterly reject Esau altogether as an individual. Uh, however, uh, the nation of Edom, which comes from Esau, I mean, that's written of uh, very well later on. And it's very clear that that nation uh, falls under judgment by God. And they eventually were obliterated by the hand of God, basically, not not supernaturally, but uh, what I would say providentially, that that they were wiped out. And one of the main reasons is that they weren't willing to help Israel out uh, in in a certain situation. So, um, you know, I I just wanted to kind of bring some perspective to that relationship uh, as we're, you know, because that's what we're talking about here. Um, Do you have anything there, Brent? Yeah, I think that's a great point because Esau, like Hebrews 12 talks about, you know, Esau could find no place for repentance, even though he sought it with tears when he sold his birthright. 
Um, you know, the point of that isn't that, like you were saying, you know, it's the point isn't that you're eternally or Esau was eternally doomed because of that decision, which is actually really amazing. It shows just how incredibly awesome God's loving kindness is. Um, because obviously God had been doing a lot of work with Esau as he had been doing a lot of work with, with, with Jacob. Um, but I think just like the story followed Jacob, but didn't follow Esau until he came back and interacted with Jacob, God is with Jacob. You know, God's focus is what Jacob represents and what Jacob will do and who he will be and how God will use him. Um, but does it doesn't mean that Esau's heart couldn't change and that he couldn't himself get in a position of humility before the blessing that God had given to Jacob. And I think that ultimately is anyone, anyone around Jacob or anybody around, you know, Christ, if they needed to learn to accept God's favor for his chosen one. And so I think in a lot of ways we are like Esau is the reality is Jesus is the anointed one and we can wish to be something that we're really not designed to be as much as we'd like to. But ultimately we need to learn that God's favor is upon Jesus himself. And my duty is to put away any bitterness or resentment and to just yield to that choice and honor that choice. And I think that's, that kind of makes Esau's position quite relatable. I think, you know, especially when I read the Bible and I see that all these things that God has done have been, far away and with a different people. And here I am in like a whole different country and whole other time. What's, what do I need to do? I need to honor who God has followed and I need to yield to that and, 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 and strive to, um, be thankful for that. So I think, I think that's kind of just the contextual attitude that Esau had in his time and in the context, if that makes sense. I think it's late in the Gospel of John where the Pharisees, the Jews, are basically saying, you know, everybody's gone after him. And, you know, that that is one of the big aspects of that conflict is that they wanted to be in the place of the Messiah. They wanted to be the one that made the rule, the ones that made the rules. They wanted to be regarded as the ones that made the rules. And, uh, of course, they're utterly rejected uh, by God for that, the ones that did not repent. But, um, you know, uh, that uh, that's a really, really good point there um, to to recognize. And it is it is healthy. Like, I really think the the relationship between Jacob and Esau comes across as very healthy. I would say for two brothers who parted on what I would really say was very lousy circumstances and uh, the fact that you know, Esau in, in leaving, in fleeing that, uh, you know, ultimately you have that moment and, you know, especially back in chapter 27, verse 41, Esau hated Jacob because of the blessing with which his father blessed him. And Esau said in his heart, the days of mourning for my father are at hand, then I will kill my brother Jacob. Obviously, that's changed. Obviously, he doesn't want to do that anymore. Even though Jacob had brought a number with him, uh, you know, Esau still could have tried that. He still he still could have tried to 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 kill his brother, but but he doesn't do that. Kind of makes you think about with Cain and Abel. If Cain had just 
thought about it some more and, and cooled down, <laughs> maybe, uh, maybe that would have been a different situation. Mm. Yeah. So the, the fact that Jacob wrestles with this man until the breaking of day, um, you know, well, I'm sorry. Let me, let me pull back a little bit too, because I want to talk about, uh, Jacob's approach toward Esau, because I do think it is, um, pretty interesting that he says, for example, in 32 and verse 20, I will appease him with the present that goes before me. And afterward, I will see his face. Perhaps he will accept me. Isn't that what we see all throughout the book of Leviticus? It's, it's the very same kind of attitude. Um, and, and then in chapter 33 and verse 10, He's, he's insisting that Esau take what he offers. He says, no, please, if I have now found favor in your sight, then receive my present from my hand inasmuch as I've seen your face as though I had seen the face of God and you were pleased with me. That that's, seems to be generally what we see in Leviticus. Hmm. Um, just as far as the language, what do you think about that, Bryant? So I heard Tom Holly say something related to that recently that um, I found really encouraging. He was actually talking about Leviticus um, at Kimberly, you know, in Birmingham, where I was attending mm-hmm. when I was in Birmingham. He did a series of lessons on Leviticus. And he was talking about like begging for forgiveness, you know, and just how unworthy we really are to receive forgiveness and gave a really good example that basically, basically the illustration he was using was um, an example of begging someone for forgiveness in something that they wouldn't consider to be a big deal, but because you as a Christian know how serious forgiveness is and error is not allowing them to make it light and accepting that. Mm -hmm. And I think that's like what the Israelites were supposed to be learning with the sacrifices. And I wonder if the sacrifices were meant to cultivate, like you were saying this, this very same heart, you know, and, and God was, giving them gifts of ordinances that were meant to create a heart of faith inside of people who were people of the flesh. Um, Because I wonder if like God's like marking this heart and then the nation that comes from this is Israel, you know? And, and so what does God want with Israel, but to have the same heart as their ancestor especially in this marked moment, you know? So I, I, I do think that Leviticus points to that. You know, I think there's probably a lot more to be thought about with that, actually. With the theme in Genesis of kind of revealing the nature of God's covenant and how it's almost like chapter by chapter, the, the purpose and the nature of God's covenant is being revealed. Um, we've talked a lot about how the covenant involves separation but I think this makes it clear that the covenant is also about reconciliation and bringing things back together that were once separated from each other and what that really means. Um, you know, I think maybe another way to think about it is just unity. God's covenant brings unity uh, among those who were once enemies. Um, man, there's so many scriptures to think about with that. I think about like Isaiah 11. Uh, which is one of those 
heavily messianic uh, prophetic sections of, of, of Isaiah. Um, you know, and it mentions in Isaiah 11, the wolf dwelling with the lamb, the leopard with the young goat, the calf with the young lion and the fatling and the little boy leading them. Um, the versing child in verse eight, putting his hand on the whole of the cobra, you know, and it's, and you get all these pictures of conversion and conversion of not just one person, but of a people who at one time were completely against each other and were hostile enemies in a, in the most natural kind of way. And so I think this is almost like, um, a really new and profound aspect of the nature of God's covenant that we see here. I would agree. Uh, and it's one of the earliest places where we see in Genesis actually a coming together, right? Yeah. This is right. an inversion of the separation theme that we've seen so far. Right. Um, and uh, there's even a, a something they work out toward the end of chapter 33. that They're like, you know, you go on ahead, I'll meet you at, at this place. I'll meet you at say year. And so, uh, yeah, that's really interesting that you see that's, that's the Jew and Gentile aspect, right? Yeah. Oh man, Steven, I've never thought of this before, but all of the true children of the patriarchs reconcile like Ishmael, for instance, was not a true child. He wasn't a child of the mm-hmm. promise. Mm-hmm. And so Ishmael and Isaac, when they separated, Ishmael never comes back. Like you never see reconciliation. I mean, they, you do see Ishmael and Isaac bury their father together, but that's, it's it's just not the same as, as, as this. And it's not the same as the reconciliation of all of Jacob's children when they get into Egypt, you know, and it's just kind of interesting because with Jacob and Esau, there was hostility, then reconciliation with Jacob's sons, there's hostility, then reconciliation. I, I don't know if I've, I've noticed to think about it in that terms before. That's a really cool point. Um, and I would, I would totally agree with that. And, you know, um, and, and isn't, isn't God telling us something about that, you know, mm. uh, especially in the new Testament where he's telling his people, Hey, you be close to each other, <laughs> confess your sins to one another. Um, which, it really, when you think about it, it's such an earth shattering statement that people still have such a problem with today. Um, we don't say that we have a problem with it, but in our actions, uh, sometimes we're not really living out that confession uh, among mm. each other. So, you know, some of the ways that Esau prepares to make this offering, of course, I would, I would compare with, um, you know, any of the Kings uh, that, you know, like David, or Solomon, mm. when they're trying to make things right with God, what do they do? Well, they assemble <laughs> a huge number of uh, animals mm. to basically put before the Lord. And mm. um, I'm using that Leviticus term before the Lord to, to again, link that back up. Oh, Stephen. Oh, man. Okay. Think about this. It should be. And it, it is that we need to seek God's favor. What if, in a sense, God is Jacob and we are Esau? Mm. What if there's a way to look at it that way? Yeah. That Think about us today, this mystery that God has been holding, that like 
God's been sending, he's been preparing gifts for us to try to win our favor. And the final gift was Jesus himself. And you think about Ephesians four, where it mentions, you know, when he ascended on high, he gave gifts to men, mm. you know, just the, the, the gifts that God sends in waves to the children of Abraham, the true children of Abraham and how God knew it wasn't enough to win the favor yet before Jesus had come. So he continued to send more gifts and more gifts and more gifts to the point where in Ephesians one, verse three, we can say, blessed be the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So I wonder if there's a sense where, you know, because God views himself like Philippians chapter two, viewing others as more important, uh, being a servant, seeing himself as unworthy. I wonder if there's a humiliating sense where I should be humiliated that I'm Esau and God is Jacob heaping up blessings just so that he can try to win my favor. And he views it as a terrifying thing to not have my favor. See, the only way that I would say that that kind of breaks down is the emphasis that Jacob has toward Esau. I don't know. Maybe, maybe I recognize that, that God does uh, lay it out before us and he urges us to respond. Right. Um, I don't, I don't know. I, to me, like it's that moment where they're actually together, where that might break down a little bit for me, but maybe I'm just not really seeing it properly. Um, I, I, yeah, you know, I was just thinking out loud. So it might, I mean, it might not be something that really, totally fits well, yeah. and it doesn't it doesn't have to uh, you know your point stands that that you know certainly god has laid everything on the line he's prepared all good things to be before us right that we can inherit all things through his son um so i you know i'm not trying to i'm not trying to say that your point is uh unnecessary anything at all i, I think i think that's a great point I'm just not sure in that specific moment. I don't know. I, 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 maybe that's just throw me for a loop and maybe we can both just sort of think about it and kind of chew on that for a little while. And speaking of chewing on things, the Jacob wrestling with the right. angel, what are your, what are your thoughts about how that kind of fits into some bigger themes? Well, uh, you know, it is often that we see throughout the Bible that when a great a man of faith is alone, that's when he can really reach a new understanding uh, of who God is. I mean, I, I'm thinking of Elijah. Elijah had to be alone. And in the state of mind that he was when he was fleeing from Jezebel, uh, whereby God could encourage him to keep going. Um, yeah, no, that's really interesting. And it was in that moment when he was alone that God gives him something to eat, helps him out, and he gives him work, um, gives him some structure. And, uh, and I think in some ways, it's almost like Jacob, is thinking about this uh, in good ways, but you know he's he's alone. You know why is he alone? 
Uh, it says in verse 22, he went, crossed over the ford. Uh, verse 23, he took them, set them, sent them over the brook and sent over what he had. And he's alone on the other side of the brook. Now, when did this man come and wrestle with him? I don't know. The text doesn't tell us. But he saw when when this man sees that he's not going to prevail against Jacob. Jacob's going to, he's going to prevail against him. And can you imagine trying to wrestle someone with your hip out of joint? I, I don't, I can't think of how painful that must have been. Um, and maybe I'm making more about that than, than there should be. But uh, again, the weird aspect here is that he is prevailing over this agent of God, this, this messenger of God being sent. And he's saying, I'm not going to let you go unless you bless me. And <clears throat> does this mean that being blessed by God, is that is that where God prevails? Because when you think about it, again, you know, mm. Jacob is prevailing. And he says, you know, here's my terms. You're going to have to bless me to let you go. And... So this man says to him, this angel says, what's your name? I'm Jacob. And so here's your blessing. Your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have struggled with God and with men and have prevailed. You have prevailed, but in that naming Israel, it says constantly that God prevails. In your very name, God prevails. So there must be some tie there that when we're blessed by God, it's God prevailing. Hmm. Jesus in what we call the model prayer in Matthew six, you know, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Every time the kingdom comes to someone. And what I mean by that is someone recognizes the truth of the gospel, obeys it. And they go, you know, voluntarily enter under the rulership of the kingdom of God. We're talking about the rule of God. God prevails, and that's a blessing for them. Um, yeah, I don't know. That, that's that's the core thing that I would see here. W- what do you think, Brian? As you were talking, I was thinking about Philippians two twelve and 13, where he says, So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. It's almost like when we wrestle with God, he prevails while mm-hmm. we prevail. It's almost like a dual, a dual triumph, you know. And isn't that just the story of Israel as a nation? You know, like there's so much struggle in the nation of Israel. But that struggle is God prevailing through the people struggling. And I think about like, especially the Psalms, the Psalms might be one of the purest examples of this idea. Man, the Psalms are so just visceral and gritty and hard. And the psalmist just suffered intensely through just the whole book, different authors as well, not just David. And what you see though in the, in the Psalms is it's, it's God prevailing. Um, Psalm 22, actually, which is one of the most famous Psalms, because that's the one where it really portrays the crucifixion. Uh, 
in Psalm 22, 20 and 21, the psalmist really cries out for deliverance at that point. And then 22 through 31 is where the psalm takes a dramatic shift that I think is much less, it's much less known than the first part of the psalm where you see the crucifixion being prophesied of. Um, Like in verse 24, he says, he has not despised nor abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, nor has he hidden his face from him. But when he cried to him for help, he heard from you comes my praise in the great assembly. I shall pay my vows before those who fear him. Uh, the afflicted will eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him will praise the Lord. Let your heart live forever. You know, so there's this, it ends that the struggle of the beginning of the Psalm ends with this incredible triumph. Um, so you just, you see that I think from beginning to end in the Bible is that, you know, to be Israel, we must struggle with God. We must strive with God in a way where we're purposely seeking the blessing that comes only through that struggle. And, keeping in the struggle, knowing that it's the only way to the blessing. Um, and I think, I think that that's, that's what brings us to become the, the true, true Israel in a sense, um, is adopting that, that same, uh, zeal, I think towards the blessing of God. John one forty seven, you know, Jesus saw Nathaniel coming toward him and said of him, behold, an Israelite indeed in whom is no deceit. And then later on in uh, verse 51, uh, again addressing Nathaniel, Most assuredly I say to you, hereafter you shall see the heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. We've already linked that up to Jacob so far, but I, I think we need to just remember that you know part of wrestling with God is calling him to task, right? And I don't mean that in a disrespectful way. But, you know, if you look back earlier in that chapter, Philip finds Nathaniel in verse 45. We found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote. He's Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Nathaniel says to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? So he has this skepticism. And the the amazing thing is that people think that God, the God of the Bible is all about no questions. Don't, you know, don't. Don't you dare doubt. Don't have any questions, you know, how dare you question me? Uh, you, you just have to believe. And I think even some people who claim to be Christians and claim to be religious will have that mindset that I can't question God. How should I? When people question God in the Bible, and as you say, Brian, in the Psalms, how many times do you see the psalmist saying, why are you doing this, God? You know, what have I done for you to treat me like this? You know, why do you allow the wicked to go unpunished and you, the righteous are suffering? And that is, that is a common question throughout not just the Psalms, but in the, in the, the, the minor prophets and other places. So I think that's a, a valid question to ask. Uh, you know, to, not, not necessarily to ask, but it's something that we need to remember that God actually, even more so than just saying, yes, I'll, I'm willing to show you. Right, I'm willing to to prove myself, and I can prove myself. Yeah, you know, I think that's the reason why. But even beyond that, I'm going to praise you for being that interested, and not just not just scoffing this off. You know, that's the thing. Nathaniel said, uh, "Can anything good come out of Nazareth?" But he still came with Philip. 
And I think that's the difference. If, if I am distrusting of the Bible and never read it, well, God's never going to save me. And we have to recognize that. That's why that's what we're, we're talking about. When you see the sin against the, against the Holy spirit, blasphemy against the Holy spirit, I would say the modern equivalent of that is to look at the Bible and say, this is an evil book. This is not going to do me any good at all. This is an old tired book. It's boring. And people say that all the time. People that call themselves Christians say that. But the reality is we have to come back to recognize that this is a book that I need to appreciate. But to find that appreciation, it may start in a place of skepticism. And I I was ranting. I was (laughs) going on a little bit there, Bryant. But do you have anything there? No, I, I agree is the, to get to the blessing, you've got to wrestle with whatever it is that is yeah. in the way to get there. So in the application section, we want to appreciate uh, what does this mean for me today? How do I employ this in my life? And I think one of the main things to pull away from this is at least one of the easier ones is for us to understand that uh, Jacob's attitude is a really good attitude for us to emulate just in his basic humility. Um, As we mentioned earlier, the prayer in chapter 32 uh, shows so much humility and so much uh, uh, meekness. And uh, it really is the embodiment, I would say, of what Jesus talks about, you know, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Yeah, I, I think Jacob at this point is approaching God from that standpoint. You know, I, you know, and... and it's amazing too, because he is so blessed. He's been so blessed. He has so much, but he is saying, I'm not worthy of these things. And and that humble attitude is exactly what we need. Not that we drive ourselves to the ground, <clears throat> but that we appreciate that God has blessed us in these ways, but we have the right viewpoint toward those blessings. And in our interactions with each other, that we come at things in a very humble manner. Um, but you know, there is something to say, say too, about, you know, allowing your interactions with God to help you in those interpersonal communications. But did you have something there, Brian? I was just thinking like, what blessing was Jacob wanting from the angel? Because you said he had so much and he was so humble. So like, was he greedy? Was he thinking like, you know, "Ah, I don't, I haven't gotten enough yet. And here's what seems to be a represent a representation of God here. Maybe I can squeeze some more possessions out of them, you know, and really get a little bit richer while, while I'm here. Um, and I wonder if that idea of that humility opened Jacob's mind to always want, he, he saw God as so good. It wasn't about the possessions. It was about being pleasing to God. Like, um, Nehemiah, 
has a couple places where I think Nehemiah uh, says what I think maybe Jacob was thinking, actually. Um, let me uh, find one of the verses here. Um, Nehemiah 13, 14, Nehemiah says, Remember me for this, O my God, and do not blot out my loyal deeds, which I have performed for the house of my God and its services. And then verse 31 says, and I arranged for the supply of wood at appointed times for the first fruits. Remember me, oh my God, for good. And, and I, I just, I wonder if that's, that's the idea is Jacob was motivated with the legitimate desire to, to please God and to be closer to God and to um, be as deeply in God's favor as he could possibly get. And not out of any ambition for any earthly gain or possession, but simply because of a sincere love for God. James speaks toward that in, uh, you know, chapter one, if you want wisdom, ask of God who gives liberally. Mm -hmm. um, also in chapter four of that book, um, you know, you ask, but you ask amiss that you may spend it on your own uh, lusts. Right. So, you know, you're asking things, but what are you asking for? Uh, right, and, right, and yes. I would agree with you. I don't think Jacob here is asking for just more stuff. Mm -hmm. um, I think he's just asking, you know, give me, give me more. He knows, he knows that good things come from God, and I right. think there is an aspect there that we can emulate. That you know, when we're praying to God, when we're interacting with God in that way, uh, we can we can say, you know, give me more of your glory, give me more of, yeah. you know, of, of your humility give me more of your power give me more of your courage and boldness um because god you know it, again the the basic principle is if we're praying for something that we know god wants us to have the answer is always yes and you know it may not be today it may not be tomorrow it may be down the road and there may be some other things that need to be involved in attaining that goal right um if I, if I'm praying to God, I want more knowledge of you. Well, I need to follow that up with proper study of the Bible and, and reading and understanding more of that. So there, there's always an aspect on my end, you know, of, of, of things that I need to do, but God and his grace, uh, can, can, can help us in those ways and shepherd us. So yeah, very, very well said. Is there an aspect here too, that this wrestling, with the angel could possibly help prepare Jacob for this meeting with Esau. Yeah. I hadn't thought about that before. That actually would, that makes a lot of sense. It's like maybe the sole concern that the wrestling got Jacob focused on is just God's favor, you know, and not, not Esau or the fear, just focus on, focus on getting God's favor. Hmm. And maybe he's applying that to his situation with Esau. Yeah, and I wonder if the confidence of knowing he had obtained God's favor as well changed his perspective, you know, and, and would have humbled him even more as he approached Esau there. Well, there's got to be an aspect of sympathy that's going on here from, from Jacob to Esau. Mm -hmm. he, he is recognizing, to some degree, he, he must recognize that, that Esau has lost it all. <laughs> ultimately in the, in, 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 you know, not, not literally at all, perhaps, but generally 
in in the place that Jacob's at, he's there because Esau didn't want it. And right. uh, I, I think at least part of this is in terms of sympathy toward Esau. And Esau initially kind of, you know, says, no, no, you, you know, it's very good natured um, on both ends. Again, I think this is a healthy uh, interaction, but, uh, you know, I, I think this is the last time that we see Esau, though, generally. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think, you know, you'll have the Edomites turn up down the road, but I mean, I right. think it's the last time we see Esau as an individual. Um, yeah, I think you may be right. So, you know, there, there are a lot of good things for us to think about here. Um, you know, the anxiety that Jacob has about this, you know, he's greatly afraid and distressed. Again, we can understand that. And many of us have been in that place before. Um, but I think one of the greatest lessons we can learn is that if we're, really truly seeking God and seeking to become closer to him, then that's going to help our interactions. And uh, that's going to help us be, and as you said, Bryant, if we're confident that we're right with God, uh, it's the it's the exact thing the new Testament authors say, you know, if I'm with him, is there a reason for me to be afraid? And it's just as a psalmist say, who can hurt me if God is with me? And, uh, Right. If, if he is for us, who can be against exactly. us? Exactly. Jacob's generosity toward Esau, while well, he still thought Esau was coming to kill mm-hmm. him. Uh, Luke 16, verse 9, one of the most confusing verses in all the Gospels. Jesus said, I say to you, make friends for yourselves by means of the wealth of unrighteousness, so that when it fails, they will receive you into the eternal dwellings. Hmm. Basically, that verse just simply means use use what you can spend to treat people like they're your door into eternal life. That verse comes shortly before the rich man and Lazarus. The rich man was like living in luxury every day while Lazarus just laid at his gate dying. And the verse applies to the rich man and Lazarus. The rich man could have used his resources to treat Lazarus with great favor because the doorway to eternal life was laying at his gate and that door's name was Lazarus. And so, you know, I think there's a lesson in this of, you know, trying to seek the favor of others through what we have and how Jacob, once he thought he was going to lose everything, it changed his view of his possessions. And that's actually what Jesus wanted people to see when he was living, especially in the gospel of Luke, Jesus emphasizes this point over and over again, you know, that if we really understand that we're just borrowing things God has given us and that we've sinned and that God is coming against us for our sin, we won't treat our things in the same way anymore. And so when we realize that God is coming against us to destroy us in our sin, it should cause us to use what we have as gifts for others doesn't mean that we can't have things, you know, um, but I think the the command of Luke 16 verse 9 speaks for itself and other commands like it. Um, so I think that, that's an interesting application I think to take out of this. What a difficult and challenging lesson when at least, you know, you and I live in a, a country that seems to be so focused on getting as much as we can. And, you know, who cares about the guy on the side of the street? 
you know, don't, don't look at them. Don't, don't listen to them, you know, and certainly we don't want to be naive. God doesn't want us to help people blindly. Um, God really does want us to help people. But, uh, but yeah, you make a, you make a great point there that, uh, you know, God has given us so much who, who are we to hold back from someone else? when ultimately none of this stuff belongs to us in the first place. So I've got two more quick things. So 33-4, where Esau ran to meet Jacob when he saw him and fell on his neck and kissed him. That is literally almost a word-for-word parallel to Luke chapter 15, Mm. uh, verse 20, where the prodigal son came back to the father. Yeah, and the father saw him at a distance, had compassion, ran, embraced him, fell on his neck and kissed him. What's interesting is the prodigal son also had stolen possession, all the the inheritance. He basically stole it from his dad uh, and had wronged him. He had deeply wronged his dad and he came back and humbled himself and his dad was just waiting. So I think that's interesting. I think a lesson in that is sometimes I don't humble myself and seek reconciliation because I'm so worried that the other person won't accept me. And maybe there's times where that won't happen, but there's most of the times when somebody really humbles themselves, you, you, you'll you be surprised how much mercy you'll receive when you truly, truly humble yourself. Not, not half-heartedly to where when they don't accept you initially, you say, well, wow, I just wasted my time. I should, what a, what a jerk. I knew I shouldn't have, I knew I shouldn't have, you know, come back to them and talk to them. What a mistake. No, if, if you truly humble yourself, I think you'll be surprised even how, Somebody who doesn't understand God's mercy will still show mercy. I've at least found that true for myself. And especially with God, we can always be confident that God is waiting to show us mercy if we really, really humble ourselves. Uh, God loves showing mercy. It's one one of the things that God tries so hard to show us, that God, his grace encourages us to let, to let ourselves feel and embrace the judgment that is against sin and mourn for that, knowing that the safety net of his grace is waiting to embrace us and comfort us. So I think, I think that's another important lesson. If, if Esau, who was a sinner, could treat Jacob so highly, surely we can expect the more from God who sent Jesus to die for us. And, 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 and hopefully as well from our brethren um, as well as we as we strive to have deeper relationships with brethren, one of the things I've read and heard concerning really the best way to treat someone that's wronged you, uh, you know, let's say it is in this same situation with Esau and Jacob. You know, there's been some time and it's not resolved, but you know, you're, you're ready. <laughs> And, and uh, the the acronym I've read about is uh, WHO or WHO. And what that really means and what that's talking about is being willing, honest, and open from the standpoint that you're always willing to have this conversation, this communication. You're not going to be duplicitous or deceitful about it. You, you truly do want to make things right. And then you're going to be open you're you're not you're you're not going to hold anything back. You're not going to have this wall built there, and that is very difficult in many situations. Um, but if we are going to have the love of God, that's really 
how we must be uh, to properly resolve these things. And, uh, you know, things may not be ever be exactly how they ought to be. But one of the great lessons here, too, is that it does imply that Jacob and Esau, you know, will have some sort of understanding with each other and some future interaction down the road. And that's great. And that's that's just more good examples that we find in Scripture to help us in our interpersonal communications. One thing you see in the Psalms, some of my favorite Psalms are the Psalms where the psalmists feel completely rejected by God. I love those Psalms. Uh, Psalm chapter 44, uh, or the 44th Psalm rather, one of my favorites. Um, talks about in 44, you know, verse, verse one, you are my king. Uh, verse seven, you have saved us. Uh, in God, we have boasted all day long in verse eight, but then all of a sudden verse nine, yet you have rejected us and brought us to dishonor and do not go without, out with our armies. Verse 13, you make us a reproach. Verse 14, you make us a byword, a laughing stock. 15, all day long, my dishonors before me. But then in verse 17, all this has come upon us, but we have not forgotten you. Um, Verse 26, rise up, be our help and redeem us for the sake of your loving kindness. I just, I love that so much. I love that Psalm because the psalmist views God as being so worthy. There's nothing, he's so persuaded about God's love. And I think that's why this Psalm is quoted in Romans 8. The persuasion of God's love is so powerful for this psalmist. Nothing will stop him from seeking God's reconciliation, forgiveness, grace, favor, mercy. Now, the psalmist is not in a place of sin in Psalm 44. That's not why he's been rejected. And he he knows he has not sinned and he knows he's not being rejected for sin. Um, but that psalm is there because it shows that God is so worthy of our seeking him that even if it seems like he's rejected us, we're we're in the position where we should still seek him. You know, uh, kind of like if if somebody is interested in a in a girl, and she's not interested in him yet, but he's so interested in her, and he he just admires her so much that he keeps pursuing her in the hope that she'll accept him, and that he can do something or say something or be something. That would that would finally interest her and change her mind, um, and and again, like who's who's Esau? I mean, who cares? You know, Esau is just just a guy. But I mean, when we're talking about the eternal God who holds our eternal destiny in His hand, you know, now now we we have so much more reason than Jacob to humble ourselves and beg and beg and beg and beg God, please accept us, God. You are so great in all that you've done. We must become your people. Make me, make me your child. And, and I think that translates to our attitude toward people in general as well. You know, so I think if, if we start, if we start with understanding how awesome it is to be in a relationship with God and how necessary that is and how there's, there's just no life outside of that. And if we understand how unworthy we are and how, we're the guilty ones. We've done the wrong thing. We've stolen things from God. When we understand that, we can begin to see other people as lords over us and ourselves as servants for the sake of others. Like I think what 
the Apostle Paul constantly affirmed about himself in relation to others. We thank you so much for taking the time to be with us today. We hope that you'll be with us next time, Lord willing, where we will go into Genesis chapter 34. Uh, Thank you so much again for your time, Bryant. Absolutely. Loved every second. Until next time, study well and be lights to God's glory. The music on this podcast is provided courtesy of Symphonia. Visit their website at symphonia.com. Walking Through the Book is created and promoted with the support of the North Columbus Church of Christ in Columbus, Mississippi. Find out more at northcolumbuschristians.com. The website of the Garden City Church of Christ in Savannah, Georgia is gardencitycoc.org.